We're now into Galatians chapter 5. Paul in Galatians 5 talks about this battle between the sinful nature, or some translations like the King James say flesh, and the spirit, and how these two things are warring against each other. Okay? And really, in, in a lot of ways, um, this is, is where we're getting into some of the, the rich, practical stuff in the letter. But I want you to remember what this letter is about. This letter, Paul wrote to people that he himself had led to Christ. They had become Christians and embraced Christianity, these people, these Galatians, because Paul had spent time with them and had talked to them about who Jesus was and what he'd done. And they'd put their faith in the work of Jesus, had trusted in that. Then Paul had left, and some other teachers who were Jewish in their cultural background came and started to teach some different things to these people in the area of Galatia. And the, the big difference centered around this. They were teaching these people that it's not enough for you to put your faith in Jesus. You need to also obey the law for God really to be pleased with you. And that it wasn't enough just to put your faith in Christ. And Paul, Paul gets very concerned, very upset at that. He, he basically goes so far as to say that that's a false gospel that's not a gospel at all. And the word gospel, of course, means good news. And what he's saying is if you believe that message that you need to trust in Jesus as well as obey the law for God to love you, it might not even be called good news. That's a message of tyranny and slavery all over again. Uh, what James just pointed out in that, in that hymn, Before the Throne, the idea that the truth that God looks upon Jesus rather than us is something that sets us free. And so at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says it's for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, don't go back into this slavery again. Don't fall back into this slavery. Basically, if you lose sight or you lose your hold or belief in the idea that your relationship with God is based completely on what he did and not what you do, you will fall back into slavery. And there is no worse slavery than knowing that you've got to do all the right things all the time, every day, to keep God smiling at you. It, it, it's, it's, well, Martin Luther put it this way. He said that bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And I, I meet with people and students all the time who are trying to live the Christian life, but they know that they're not doing it good enough. And they, they're... they're getting really overwhelmed by their guilt and their shame, which, of course, makes them even less likely to want to live the Christian life. Because the reality is, the power to live the Christian life comes from being sure that God is pleased with you. If you're not sure that God is pleased with you because of what Jesus did, that Jesus lived and died the life and death you should have lived and died, and that in the gospel, the good news, you get credit for that, and therefore, if you're a Christian, God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus. If you don't believe that, you will never be set free from having to secure your own standing with God. The problem with that, of course, is that God says you need to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. How can you do that? Never. You could spend your whole life and all of your best efforts trying to attain to that, but you will never reach a point of peace. 
You will never have that issue settled. You'll always be wondering, did I do enough? And of course, in the back of your mind, you'll know, actually, no, I didn't. Right? And, and there's so many people who've been raised in Christian circles or been around Christians who've gotten the idea that Christianity is about trying to do your best and hoping that God grades on a curve. And, uh, you know, of course, what it causes them to do is to try to influence God's curve. And so they love to point out other people's sins and why they should be lower on the, on the scale than them. Right? All of that kind of stuff that we despise in Christians flows out of not understanding what Paul is teaching in Galatians. Do you realize that? All the stuff you hate in yourself flows out of not really believing that you're justified, that you're made beautiful in God's sight by what Jesus did. Now, this is what Paul's getting at in Galatians 5. He talks about this warfare between the sinful nature and the spirit. And I don't have time to go into all this again tonight, but let me just suffice to say what the sinful nature wants to do is to justify itself before God. And Paul says that the acts that flow out of that are are this whole list of things he mentions here in Galatians 5 verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. All of those things are the acts of the sinful nature. They all are symptomatic of us trying to justify ourselves. And there's sort of a religious version of that and an irreligious version of that. The religious version that you meet with in churches goes this way. Well, God said to do this and that and I can do it. And, of course, you don't, you don't really ever feel good about your performance. And so you're pretty bitter and angry and often trying to point out how other people are worse than you. To deflect, to deflect God looking at you, you're always wanting to point out other people's faults. Because you're trusting in what you've done, you're incredibly insecure and touchy and defensive all the time. Paul uh, later talks about how these people, well, elsewhere in the book of Galatians, he talks about how these people are biting and devouring one another. That a lack of belief in justification by grace, that your standing with God is, based, is because of what he did, will always flesh itself out in your relationships. And those are the things in this list. Envy, factions, selfish ambition, fits of rage, all those sorts of things are, are the religious are the religious version. Those are the kind of sins that show up in religious circles where people aren't really believing that what Jesus did is enough. And they think that they need to justify themselves by what they need to do. But there's also an irreligious way of rejecting grace. There's a religious way of rejecting grace, is what I'm saying, which is to basically say, I don't need grace, I can cover it myself. And it produces all these things. But there's an irreligious version that says, I don't need grace. I don't need God. I'm God. I decide how I want to live. I'll do what I want. I'll live for pleasure for what feels good at the moment. But again, you see, it's still the sinful nature. It's still your heart saying, I don't need grace and I don't want grace. In the religious version, you're saying, I can be my own savior by doing the right things. In this irreligious version, you're saying, I can be my own savior by defining what's right. I'm I'm the measure of all things, right? 
And so all these other things are connected to the sinful nature as well. The problem with Christians, you see, is they love to point out those irreligious things and say all those people outside of the church, they have the sinful nature. And they're doing all this crazy stuff like drunkenness and orgies and all that stuff. And what Paul says is the stuff that happens in Christian churches is also the sinful nature. It's another side of the same coin of trying to justify yourself and being incredibly insecure and um, therefore always having to lash out and attack other people. In opposition to that, though, Paul says, there is the fruit of the Spirit. Again, fruit of the Spirit, the idea that when the Spirit is at work in your life, conforming you, making you more and more like Jesus, you can see it. It's manifest some way, just like when you're committed to saving yourself, you can see it. It becomes manifest in your life. And that's what we're looking at right here. Look at verse 22. We'll start in Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And we're going to talk tonight about love, joy, and peace. We're going to talk about where do these come from. We're going to talk about what they are. We're going to also, though, talk about the weeds that threaten to choke each of these out in our life. If these are things that are the fruit of the Spirit, it's important to understand that sometimes the reason they're not manifest in our lives is because there are weeds choking them out. I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. And then there are also, sometimes there are counterfeits that may look like the fruit of the Spirit, but aren't really the fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to talk about each of these, love, joy, and peace, what they are, what the weeds are in our life and in our belief system that threaten to choke them out and keep them from growing, and what are the counterfeits, where sometimes we get confused and we think that this fruit is really growing in our life, but in reality, it's our sinful nature masquerading as the fruit. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into this. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you would use even the foolishness of preaching to help to grow us into your image, to help us to understand what Christian character looks like and then how the gospel drives it into our lives. We pray that you would help us, that you would send your spirit, that we could behold wonderful things from your word and that it would truly transform us and set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think one of the most important questions you have to ask yourself if you're thinking about Christianity if you are a Christian, wherever you're at in that continuum, is this. Does Jesus call us merely to live an ordinary life well, or does he call us to live a completely different sort of life? In other words, is the gospel just something that we're supposed to use so that we can become more content with ourselves, more at peace with ourselves, Or is it actually supposed to change us? And of course the answer is, it's supposed to change us. The the gospel, the good news, this announcement that Jesus has broken into history, 
that He has lived and died in the place of sinners is supposed to produce something. It's supposed to produce a community that is the first fruits of what God is bringing, which is redemption to all of life. It, it, it should, it's not just that we accept Jesus and we know that we have hellfire insurance and we can go to heaven when we die. The gospel coming into our life should begin to change things. In other words, if your fundamental orientation in your life is transferred from you trying to take care of yourself to trusting in Jesus, it should make a difference in the way you live. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Where is the, is the work of the gospel, is the Spirit at work in the lives of Christians producing love, joy, and peace? Now, last week I, I, I kind of ran over a couple things quickly. I just want to make by way of introduction a couple points from a very wise man, Jonathan Edwards. Now, unfortunately, most of you, the only thing you've ever read from Jonathan Edwards is what? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. How many people read that in high school? Yeah, right. And how many, how many of you thought that that was a hellfire and brimstone sermon that he preached? Right? Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's, it's one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted um, sermons in the history of the world, probably because it's mostly taught by English professors who don't really understand the cultural context. But, you know, Edwards preached that. There, there's some evidence that Edwards actually preached that sermon deliberately not looking at people. Um, in a monotone, so that he would not be guilty of manipulating their emotions. He actually preached that same sermon to them, to his own congregation, a few months earlier, to no effect whatsoever. But anyway, that's that's topic for another day. The, what, Edwards is one of the most profound religious thinkers that America has ever produced. And one of his most important works is a series of sermons that were later gathered into a book called Charity and Its Fruits or love and its fruits. That's the old King James word for love, is the word charity. And in that, in that series of sermons, he makes a very important point um, that is relevant to us as we look at this fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians, and it's this. that the, the, In the Greek and in the English, do you notice that in verse 22, it says the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. It's singular, not plural. The significance of that is really huge because most Christians that I know just assume it says fruits. And then they look at the list and they content themselves that they see a couple of those things in their lives. But what Edward says is it's not fruits and you, you'd be happy if you have a couple. It's fruit. It's a multifaceted way to describe Christian holiness. And if you don't have one of these, you don't have any of them. You you don't have, for instance, the fruit of self-control if you don't also have joy. If you think you have self-control but you don't have joy, what you've done really, and I told you my story is more, more of this, you've killed all of your emotions so that nothing moves you. That's very different than the Christian fruit or holiness manifested in the area of self-control. Okay? So the, it's fruit. In other words, they're, they're all, they all go together, is the first point. 
And the second point is you can't have one without the other. In other words, um, a person without humility may appear peaceful, but they generally are only peaceful because their circumstances are going well. And, and what I mean is if you're humble, then you understand that everything that you have is a gift. And it changes the way you respond when it's taken away. So somebody may appear peaceful, but if they don't have humility, pretty soon it will, it will be shown that they don't really have the peace that is the fruit of the Spirit. They have the flesh masquerading as peace, but it's not real peace. It's not the peace that the gospel brings, okay? Now, that's a very important concept because, you know, when, when I'm going to be talking about the fruit and the weeds and the counterfeit, it's important to understand that it's like looking at this diamond, Christian holiness, and looking at different aspects. What does Christian holiness look like in the context of trials? What does it look like in the context of disappointment? What does it look like in the context of conflict? What does it look like in the context of a world that is broken and hurting? Right? That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Christian character expressed in different opportunities in different settings. But it is helpful to look at each of these um, aspects uh, separately. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Now remember, here, here's the idea. Here's the idea of the fruit and the weeds and the counterfeit. Try and get a, try and get a handle on this. A weed um, is basically a violation of God's law. Um, and, and of course, so is the counterfeit fruit. But here's the difference. Weeds are things that choke out the fruit, that keep it from growing and being manifest in our lives. The counterfeit is something that looks like the fruit, but in reality isn't. And, and, and rather than talk a lot about this in an abstract way, let me just dive into the first one, to love. I think that'll be the best way for you to understand what I'm talking about here and to see how this works. What, what is love? Now, in the context of Galatians, I think that what Paul is talking about here, I'm, I'm reasonably sure of this, is love for other people. Love in the context of human relationships. Uh, He's just talked about the sinful nature and mentioned a lot of lack of love things in the context of human relationships, factions, envy, selfish ambition, all these sorts of things. When he contrasts the fruit of the spirit of love, I think the first thing that he has in mind here is love with regard to relationships with other people, love for other people. So how, how how would a Christian or how would Christianity define love? Define it this way, not as something you fall into. But, but really serving a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what they bring to you. Now, actually, the Bible describes love a lot more than it defines it. But the Bible's understanding of love is always it's about serving somebody for their good, not for what they bring to you. It's not using people, in other words. And so that's the definition. Well, what are the weeds that choke that out? In other words... Why, what blocks that from being manifest in your life? If you're somebody who's a Christian and you're trying to follow Jesus, why is it when you look at your life, you see such a distressing lack of love? What are the weeds that are always choking out love in your life? And I'll tell you, basically, there there are several of them. And and here's a a couple. The first is fear and self-protection. Actually, I think this is probably the root weed. Fear and self-protection. 
Fear and self-protection are incompatible with love. Uh, the Apostle John says that in his letter in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When we lose sight of the perfect love that God has bestowed upon us, when we begin to think that what God thinks about us is based upon what we do, then we fall out of peace and love and we fall into fear. And as soon as you fall into fear, you become self-obsessed. A Christian man that I know once said wisely, the point of justification, the point of Christianity, is not that when you become a Christian, you think less of yourself and you beat yourself up all the time. It's that really you think of yourself less. In other words, when you become a Christian, the issue of what does God think about me is settled. If you're not a Christian, you should wonder what God thinks about you. But if you're a Christian, the issue is settled. What it means to be a Christian is to be somebody who has accepted and has experienced this great exchange where the life that Jesus lived has been credited to your account and the death that Jesus died has been credited to your account. And that means the issue of what God thinks about you is settled. Everything that would make God want to run away from you has been abolished, wiped away. And everything that you need to get God to love you has been sealed and settled. Right? It's been sealed. It's been settled. Sorry, I'm trying to turn this off and I can't get it to go off. There it goes. Um, So, in other words, if that's settled, it really does change what you need to get from other relationships. You You don't have to walk around all the time seeking to get people to approve of you all the time. Because the creator of the universe says that you're perfectly accepted and welcomed into my embrace. That has to to flow over into the way you relate to other people. In other words, if you understand that you're fabulously wealthy, you can afford to be generous. You can afford to give of your time. You can afford even to, to, to suffer hurts and disappointments, and still stay in there loving people. But if you don't know that the love of God is real and true and is directed to you and has been lavished upon you, you've got to get it somewhere. And of course, wherever you're trying to get it from, it's like you're, you're trying to get blood out of a turnip, right? You're trying to get something that you can't ever really get. Uh, I've heard somebody describe it this way, you know, that that two people trying to love one another without the love of Christ are like two ticks on a dog with no dog, just trying to suck life out of each other. It doesn't work very well. I know it's a gross image because it's a gross reality. It's not what we were made for. The Bible says, 1 John also says, that we love because he first loved us. In other words, you don't create love, you don't wump it up, you reflect it. And to the degree that you're receiving and enjoying the love of God, to that degree can you express it and give it to other people. If you're not experiencing the love of God, then 
you don't have anything to give. You've got to get, get, get. And it may actually look like love, but it's not. So, so the real, the weed that chokes it out is to, to not believe that the love of God is real and powerful and as good as it is. So fear and self-protection. There's another weed, which is basically hatred, using and abusing people. Which, which flows, again, out of this same kind of lack of belief of the gospel. It's basically, it's basically feeling like, you know, I'm the Lord Almighty, and people exist for me to use to get what I need. Hatred, using and abusing people, will choke out love. Obviously, it can't coexist with love. But what's the counterfeits? Because here's the, here's the thing. You know that you're not supposed to hate. You know that your life should not be full of fear and self-protection. But here's the interesting thing. The counterfeits, I think, are sometimes so subtle that it's hard to recognize them. So let, let me point out a couple of these. The first is this, limited love. We're always wanting to, to, to have God spell out reasonable limits to who and how we're supposed to love. <coughs> And it's always interesting talking to people and probing this a little bit. And, and, and you always will find, yeah, I'm committed to the idea of love to a point. Somebody want to close that for me? Somebody close that door. Thank you. Limited love. The, you know, the, one of the classic stories is in Luke chapter 10, where this teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and it says, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, you know, basically, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? And he says, you know, blah, blah, this, that. And Jesus says, okay, great. And, um, you know, Jesus says, um, love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, yes, that's right. And then notice this. But he wanted to justify himself. This is in verse 29 of Luke 10. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See what he's saying? He's saying, okay, I understand the Bible says I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor, but there's a limit, Jesus. Come on, let's be reasonable. You can't mean for me to love him. You can't mean for me to love her or those people. Who who is my neighbor, really? Do you see how he seeks to justify himself by limiting the kind of love that he's to express? And we do this all the time. We content ourselves, we justify ourselves, and feel that we're loving people because we've shrunk the group of people that we're supposed to love to people that we can love in our own strength, in our own flesh, without the love of Jesus at all. Christians do this all the time. They love people that are just like them. And then they pat themselves on the back and feel good about themselves. That's not love. That's not the kind of love that transformed the world in the first century, and it's not the kind of love that Jesus calls us to exhibit towards the world in our day. So the, this limited love so often, so often seems like love, but it's not. And um, so that's one of the counterfeits. The second is selfish affection. You may know it by the name codependency. It seems like love. But it's not. It's being attracted not to the person, but to how the person makes you feel about yourself. And again, you know, these relationships may be very strong, very intense. They may feel like, like, 
we're very connected and intimate. But it's not love. It's not loving some person, giving to them, not expecting or needing to get something back. It, it really is a self-serving love. It's love so that I can get. Codependency, selfish affection, is another, is another counterfeit. And it may feel really powerful, but it, 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 it fails ultimately the definition of Christian love. And the third is, and I mentioned this last week, is this idea of tolerance. And, and it's so tragic. I told you a story of, of talking with a guy one time um, who was a homosexual, and he was talking about why do you Christians hate us so much? Why won't you just tolerate us? And, and I said to him, how tragic that the most that you can hope for from Christians is to be tolerated. I said, brother, the Bible does not tell me to tolerate anybody. It tells me to love. And how sad that there are whole groups of people in our world that just want to be tolerated and think that that would be enough. But tolerance, see, is one of those counterfeits. I think it really is the satanic counterfeit that masquerades as love in our day. But, you know... If somebody tolerates you, it doesn't really make you feel very warm and fuzzy inside, does it? It's not love, and we know that. So how does the gospel grow love in our lives and help us to repent of these counterfeits? You see, all of these counterfeits, again, are connected to not believing that Jesus is really enough. These counterfeits exist because we're too afraid to open ourselves up to what God may really be calling us to do. And that's, see, here's the great irony and the great and the great tragedy, is you'll never really understand the love of God until you try to love somebody that you have no power to love. See, here's the thing. If you limit who you're to love to people that are easy to love, you'll never really experience the love of God toward you in the way you should. And it's sort of this vicious cycle. You're just sort of in this tiny little whirlpool over here, you know, thinking that you're loving people so well, but you're basically just kind of hanging out with people that affirm you all the time. And you wonder why the gospel never seems powerful in your life. Let me tell you, if you actually set yourself to love somebody that you feel like you have no power or patience to love, you will find yourself having to go to the cross of Jesus every day and every hour begging him to give you his love for this person. I tell people all the time when I do weddings, that we do not gather together, dress up in our nice clothes, and try to pump up the bride and groom's um, emotions so high that will sustain them through the next 30 or 40 years of their marriage. There's no possible way to do that. What we hope happens is that they get a picture of Jesus, the truly beautiful one in our midst that they understand when they make those vows that Jesus makes vows to them to never leave them or forsake them through rich and poor, in sickness and in health. And he makes those vows not till death parts them. His vows were actually sealed by death. Therefore, death can never end them. Right? This is what you need to know to actually be in a relationship with somebody because you can't possibly do enough investigation to make sure this person is safe and reliable enough for you to trust. But Jesus is. And you have to, every day, every minute, 
walk down that road saying, Jesus, give me your love for this other person because I don't have enough love. You're marrying a sinner. You're called to love sinners. You can't possibly do it. And the fact that we run away from trying is actually one of the reasons why the gospel seems so small in our lives. It's like this. Faith is a muscle that grows by being exercised. If you never put yourself in a place where God has to show up or you're not going to fall flat on your face, don't be surprised if you don't really feel the love of God is very powerful. You've never needed it, right? So the, the gospel grows love in our lives when we actually use it and fail and then have to go back to Jesus and receive his forgiveness and his grace and see again how good it is that his love is not like ours. How good it is that the love of Jesus is not self-serving. Right? How good it is that Jesus, and maybe you need to hear this tonight, that Jesus didn't love you just so he could put you to work. Jesus loved you. It says in Zephaniah three seventeen that God rejoices over you with singing. And a lot of people grow up in Christian churches and the idea, you've been saved to serve. And, you know, there's a sense in which that's true. But if you, if you think that, that basically God just recruited you on his team and you lose sight of the love that he lavishes upon his people, well, how, how tragic. And no wonder that we, that we don't love in a radical way. Um, joy. What about joy? Now, here's the thing. Joy has to be able to coexist with sorrow if it's true Christian joy. In Romans 12, 15, it says... Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's one of the verses that used to mock me and really was the beginning of me beginning to understand that maybe I don't really have the fruit of self-control because I, I can't rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. So something's wrong. What's the definition? The definition of joy is delight in God and his salvation for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. I might even add to that, rejoice in God and his salvation and his kingdom for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. You see that? It's not based upon circumstances. That's, that's the huge difference between how we often think of joy and what Christian joy really is. Now, what are the weeds? What are the things that threaten to choke out joy in your life? The first is hopelessness and despair. Now, this is more than sorrow, because again, joy and sorrow coexist for Christians. But this is losing sight of the big picture because the trees are so huge. Despair is, like Paul says, we don't rejoice like those without hope. We don't sorrow like those without hope. That in the midst of our sorrow, we have hope. In some ways, our sorrow even fuels our hope and stirs it up. That we long for a day when all will be made right and we know that it's coming. Therefore, we actually have the freedom to go to those places of sorrow now. We don't have to pretend that everything is fine now. We don't have to walk around with a smiley face all the time. You know this counterfeit uh, joy that is just like, you know, this Pollyanna, everything's wonderful and don't bother me with reality. And a lot of people are so sickened and turned off by Christianity because that's what they've experienced. That's not joy. That's not the deep, abiding joy that is able to sustain us through sorrow. Hopelessness and despair are not, are, are, are not, are not connected to God. They're losing sight of the reality that God is 
sovereign. So the, the first weed is this hopelessness and despair. Um, the second is the sorrow because we're frustrated by God's providence. What does this mean? It often looks like self-pity, and it exposes the fact that we have a false basis of security and joy. Um, murmuring is maybe the version of this weed that you've experienced or um, fall into. I know I do. It's this idea. Um, well, John Sanderson, who wrote a great little book about the, um, the fruit of the Spirit, says this. God does not always work as we want him to. Our source of joy must be God, not his ways of working. God does not always work like we want him to. So it's very important that our source of joy not be God's ways of working or him fulfilling the prescription that we've written for him. It must be God himself so that we can say, God, I want you. Whether it's, a part, you know, whether it's through you know, avoiding a trial or in the midst of this trial. This is, what, this is what Job comes to understand, right? That when he asks God why, he does not get an answer. What he gets is a revelation of who God is. And, and there's a sense in which that's enough for him. Um, are we frustrated at God's providence? In other words, again, this is why you can't really have joy without humility. If you're constantly criticizing the way God is running his world, you will not have joy. Unless, of course, God's doing things the way you think he should. Then you have what you think is joy. But it's not really joy because you're ultimately putting yourself above God. And when he's doing what you want, then you're happy. When he's not doing what you don't want, when he's not doing what you want, you're not happy. That's not joy. It may look like it. And that's the counterfeit, right? That joy is based on the circumstances rather than on God and himself and what he's done for you. I, I will add one more root, one more weed, which is this, rejoicing in the downfall of others. We can experience what seems like joy in the, in the downfall of other people. That's not Christian joy, right? And it's incompatible with it. The weeds are all incompatible with Christian joy. The counterfeit masquerades as Christian joy, and it's this joy that's based on circumstances. Tim Keller puts it this way, the counterfeit is this elation that comes with blessings, not the blesser. Where, where we're more, more happy about the blessings than we are the one who gave them to us. How does the gospel grow joy in our lives? And the, the quick answer is this, by directing us to gaze back at the cross and forward at the joy to come. You see, true joy and true sorrow can coexist and do coexist in a fallen world. But for a Christian, joy is more deep-seated than sorrow because we have been reconciled to our God. As we look back, we know that there is a deep abiding peace and joy that comes from knowing that no matter what else is wrong in the world, what else is broken in the world, this one relationship has been restored completely. As many as relationships as you have that are in a shambles, there is one relationship in your life, if you're a Christian, that is as good as it could be. Wow. Doesn't that give you courage to move forward into some of those other ones that are so difficult? There is one relationship you have that has been restored. This is why the Bible talks about we've been reconciled to God. Been reconciled. The two that were at enmity, Man and God have been brought together and there is now peace, right? And this, this joy, you see, 
you look back and you say, this relationship has been fixed. This issue has been settled. And you look forward and you say, there is a day coming when everything will be made right and all accounts will be settled. And so Christian joy comes from looking back and looking forward. As you look back at the cross, you realize, you realize that Jesus loves you, is committed to you, has given you something you never could have earned on your own, and he's lavished it upon you. And you look forward and you say, this God who showed his commitment to the cross has promised so much more. Finally, peace. The definition is this. Confidence and rest in the sovereignty and wisdom of God rather than in your wisdom and sovereignty. And here's the important point about this. The objective peace with God that I just talked about, this reconciliation that the gospel brings drives peace, a subjective peace, with yourself and with others. It's so often, when the Bible talks about peace with God, it's not talking about peaceful feelings primarily. That's why, you know, when I was growing up in this high school ministry, we used to sing the tune Amazing Grace, or the, the hymn Amazing Grace to the tune of the Eagles, Peaceful, Easy Feeling. Did anybody ever do that? It's an atrocious thing to do. Because what it associates grace, this objective reality, God's riches at Christ's expense, it turns it into a feeling. I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. Grace is so much more than a peaceful, easy feeling. Grace and peace are something objective that Christ wrought for us at the cross. And because of that, it spills over into our life, into our feelings, right? So the definition is confidence and rest in the wisdom and sovereignty of God. The weeds are anxiety and worry. What is anxiety? I love this definition by Sanderson. See if this hits home with you. Anxiety is the preoccupation with things of lesser importance in the false confidence that if they're well cared for, life will move along smoothly. Anxiety counts some things more important than God and seeks to derive security from these things rather than from God himself. We always get anxious about things that we think we have control over in this false confidence that if I can gain control over this, well, then maybe the big things will kind of work themselves out. And of course, you can't even get control over the little things. And so it's this vicious cycle and you get more and more anxious and then you feel more and more need to control it. Anxiety and worry will choke out peace because they're based on a lie. They're based on a lie, two lies, really. The lie that you need to be in control of the world and the lie that God is not in control of his world and this lie that that God doesn't care. They're all lies that lead to anxiety and worry. But there's also jealousy and envy. Because when you can't have peace in what God has ordained for you because you're always worried about what others are getting. It's a great picture of this. After Jesus restores Peter and um, after he's resurrected and he he, he basically says to Peter that you are going to go where you don't want to go and be bound in a way you don't want to be bound. In other words, Jesus prophesies to Peter that you will drink the cup that I had to drink, that you will be martyred. And we know from the testimony of church history that Peter was crucified upside down. This is in John 21. And what does Peter say? Peter says to Jesus, he looks at John, he says, well, what about him? Right? Rather than saying, Jesus, give me grace and strength to glorify you in the midst of that, he says, what about him? Right? 
It's this envy and jealousy. It's like you could care less what God has ordained for your life. You're always comparing with everybody else to see if you're getting a raw deal. That will choke peace out of your life because God is never going to reveal to you the story that he has unfolding for other people. Right? You can never know, really. We believe this lie that if we only had that, that we'd be able to rest. What's the counterfeit to peace? See if you recognize this one. Ah, whatever. Ah, what's the one I love? Um, Oh, it's all good. I hate that statement. (laughs) It makes no sense whatsoever. I I don't think when people say that to me, that they really are saying because of the sovereignty of God and his goodness and his commitment to make all things right one day, it's all good and I can endure this suffering now. It's not what people mean. It's, it's this sort of apathy and indifference that we try to, to content ourselves with to, to make it seem like we're at peace. And of course, we're at peace with the things we shouldn't be at peace with, like the world and injustice and our own cold hearts. We try to make peace with those things and then Oh, it's just a mess. The counterfeit, apathy and indifference. It's a way to produce what looks like peace, but true peace is very different than deadness and numbness. And I I think much of pop psychology is an attempt to counterfeit the fruit of peace by getting you to quit caring about things. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. I'm not saying all psychology or counseling is a lie from the pit of hell. Hear me well. But I'm saying that this idea that you should just quit caring about things, that you just care about things too much, Uh uh-uh, that's not where peace comes from. Because that would be peace without joy. It's not peace. It's not real peace. How does the gospel grow peace? By giving us faith in the sovereignty and love of God. Peter says it so well in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So I, I remember back in college when I first read that verse and saying, and, and it's, never, it's never left me. What a glorious combination we have here. God has a mighty hand and he cares for you. And so much of our lack of peace is because we forget one of those two things. There's so many Christians who run around and say, yes, I believe God is sovereign, God is sovereign, but they don't really believe that he cares for them. This is really the heart, heart of Islam in a lot of ways. God is sovereign, right? Islam means submission. God is sovereign. That attribute is is magnified over all the others. And and there are a lot of Christians who live that way. And a lot of them are in reformed groups that think the sovereignty of God is everything. And and they don't think or or even seem to care much or feel much the love of God. Um, But God isn't just sovereign. He cares for you. On the other hand, you have a lot of people who are always scurrying around without any peace at all because they're always, they're always praying to God and asking him for things, but they don't really believe he has power to do anything. In other words, they believe he cares. They believe he weeps with those who weep, but they don't believe he can really change anything. And some of them, it's because they think that that would violate man's free will. Some of them, they just have experienced things in their life where they just really find it difficult to believe that God is both mighty and caring. But the reality is God has a mighty hand and he cares. And without both of those things, you will never have true peace. 
Look at the salvation Christ wrought on the cross. It proves that he has a mighty hand, and it proves that he cares. I mean, at the cross, you see the power of God and the love of God manifest. I love this verse. We'll close with this in Hebrews 1.3. The Son of God, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Listen, here's the power. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins at the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He doesn't just sustain all things by his powerful word. He came, he lived as one of us. He suffered death because he cares. And now he sits down at the right hand of God. He sits down because he's not fretting over his world and where it's going and what's going on. He sits down because the work of salvation and making purification for sins is finished. And it doesn't, there, none of it remains for you to do. This is what brings peace. God cares. God has a mighty hand. God has reconciled his people to himself. Let's pray together.